The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Take your Bibles, open with me the book of Matthew. When you get there, go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to kind of begin this morning and continue, I think, unless I change my mind and I'm subject to doing that, but we'll continue basically Matthew chapter 5 on for probably what will be the rest of the day and on for a little while. But anyway, uh, it's been back about 10 years ago almost to the date i got to looking back and trying to figure things out and it seems like the same sunday if this is the third sunday of may it may have been the same sunday in may about 10 years ago or so i actually began a sermon series i was living in philadelphia mississippi and began a sermon series on the sermon on the mount and i remember going through that series which lasted at that time 18 weeks and thinking to myself, wow, that was probably the best uh, sermon I've ever read. Not the best sermon I've ever taught, but obviously the best sermon I've ever read. Uh, it is the longest sermon of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And even though we can read it ourselves, I've been told that a very fast reader can read it in 10 minutes. I've been told an average reader, which I'm below that, but a uh, below average reader even could read it in about 18 minutes. It still has so much packed away in it. And so I don't want to do exactly what I did 10 years ago. I want to do what I've done every year since. It's been since that time, uh, since that 10-year-ago mark, when I started to study that and, and preach from that text back then. Uh, I haven't preached it every year by any means, but I have taken time every year in the month of May for me personally, not necessarily always to share with anyone, but for me personally to examine again the Sermon on the Mount because I have noticed myself that there is so much packed in it that I need, uh, not only to live every day, but especially that I need in, in assisting me to know how to preach. I don't know, uh, well, I know for a fact there's no better resource which we can go to to study, to examine, to preach uh, than the Bible. And in my mind, if you want to look at any of the great sermons that are in the Bible, there are many, Benton, you know, penned there or recorded there or spoken there by various and different people, there's probably no better to go to than Jesus being the Son of God and God in the body. So these words of His, you may have an edition of your New Testaments that had the words of Christ in red. If that's the case, you'll probably see the majority, if not nearly all of these verses uh, being put in red. Obviously, Jesus is the one speaking these words and when he does that, he's doing it in such a way as to deliver these thoughts and these ideas to a people at that time who certainly needed to hear them. And the thing about it is, I know one thing, that even though I'm 10 years removed from personally first really examining this text, uh, I need to know these things. I need to be reminded of it just as much as they did some 2,000 years ago. And someone asked me one time, said, Jim, do you think the New Testament and the way it was written, and, it's, and they use this word, I wouldn't, but they said the way it was written with some of its archaic terms and thoughts and, and all, do you think it still applies to us today? And of course, my absolute answer to that is for sure it does. It completely does. And then the Sermon on the Mount, does it apply to us today? Because Jesus is going to cross some, some thoughts and some ideas and talk about some practices that took place even in Old Testament times, 
and were still being practiced, that is by the point of this actual speaking of the sermon, which was still Old Testament times, but preparing us for New Testament ways, there's some things here that we don't do, that we don't apply ourselves to doing in the same way. Does it still apply? Absolutely, yes, it does, for sure. And I think the audience that Jesus writes to here in the Sermon on the Mount, and again, you know well as Bible students, it's recorded in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. That's the whole of the sermon. I know that the things that are written here are written to people like you and I who are just like the people back then. Uh, maybe because we have full revelation, because we have a Bible put together, leather-bound copies, I would hope that maybe we endure or doing a little bit better than they had done uh, because many of those people just didn't have all the information. Now, they had heard it through the Old Testament scriptures. They knew about God. They should have appreciated God. They should have, through prophecy, appreciated the fact that Christ was coming in a body as He did, the fact that He would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There's so much information they should have had. But when it comes to living life as a New Testament Christian, they had a little bit, and I only give them a little bit of credit for such, they had a little bit of a disadvantage in compared to us because we have the pages to turn to. And we're not sitting as they were at that time waiting on revelation for God or waiting on one of God's spokesmen like the apostles to come into town or to pen a letter and to send over for us to learn how to live. If we have questions, uh, we have to take the time to do it, and obviously it can take much time, but we can take the, the New Testament and we can thumb through it and scan through it and examine it and delve into it, and we can learn, and we can have those things, and then we can go out and live it. Uh, not easy to do, but easy to discover. And so that's a part of what I think happens here in the Sermon on the Mount. As I said a moment ago, this is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, at least is what we have. Um, it has spoken, at least according to what we find here. We'll read the first two verses to see this. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was sent, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, I don't know what you have in punctuation at the end of the word saying. It's got a comma. I don't know much English. Maybe a colon would be better there because he's about to say an awful lot of stuff as, as we would term it. But when he sits here, according to what we refer to this, we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, exactly whether or not we would call this a mountain or not, I'm not sure. Um, I've had people tell me, even though that Chihaw Mountain is the highest point in Alabama, I've had people tell me that's not a real mountain. That's the foothills. That's just the very last in the line of the Appalachians, and, and that's the last thing that you could legally and specifically call a mountain, but it's really no big deal. And, and, and I get that, I understand that, but we love it. You know, we love it all the same around here. But I do know that I've been to other places where I've approached mountains, even over in North Georgia and Tennessee, and I pulled up to them and I look up and I look up and my neck hurts. And, you know, so I understand, you know, the comparison. I don't think Jesus was on the tip top of a mountain, but I do know that he had gone up on a hillside or a mountainside to preach. And according to what we learn in the preceding chapters and we gather as to where he actually was, Jesus had more than likely not gone very far from the Sea of Galilee. Other texts refer to it as the Sea of Gethsemane, same place. Yet another one of the gospel accounts refer to the same area, the same body of water as the Sea of Tiberias. 
And that a lot of that depended on which side of the bank you were on. You know, if there was a lake, and I'm sure there is a lake somewhere around here, a larger body of water, and someone might say, well, this is, you know, this is Piedmont Lake. Someone says, no, this is Spring Garden Lake. And, you know, the, the areas that outline it, someone may make claim to it according to where they live and how they see it. That's how the Sea of Galilee slash Sea of Tiberias slash Sea of Gethsemane, that's how it was approached. Depending on what part and portion of the bank you were on, you might call it something different. Jesus has been out there in and around that area, teaching in and around that area. He's made himself, according to what we're reading here, uh, taking himself up into a little bit of a higher place, to a mountainside at least. I don't know, some scholars assume, and I think based on the place they have supposedly pinpointed that this is in the Bible lands, it makes a natural amphitheater. It makes a naturally good place to speak where if someone projected their voice from that, it would be heard easily. And it also makes an area where, according to the scripture right here, where multitudes of people could gather. And so here is Jesus. He's made his way off of the coastline there, up onto a mountainside, an area, a hillside there. He begins to speak to these people, and he tells us specifically here to whom he speaks. He says, and when he was set, his disciples came. So he's already sat down. His disciples came, and that includes more than just those we would number them 12 apostles. You see, all apostles are disciples. She's saying something about the sound speaker thing. Y'all know about that? Uh, all, uh, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles, if that makes any sense. An apostle was one who was hand-chosen, hand-picked by Jesus. We know in the beginning of that, at least he numbered them among the twelve. And he goes out and he handpicks these men. He made them or allowed them to be followers, which is what a disciple is. A disciple is a follower slash learner. And they began to follow him. And then as he began to send them out, they would be more termed as apostles because the word apostle means one sent. And in that case, one sent with that peculiar message of the gospel. And so we've got disciples here, which I'm sure included those apostles, but apparently include a number of disciples among that multitude. Now, why do I even mention that? Because although this sermon that we're about to, to read through parts of it and examine parts of it even today, although this does have some good practical uh, ways of living, although this does have within it some good material or bylaws or laws by which any man could live by and be moral, the audience that he is addressing here is not that of just the general public in the world, but he's necessarily addressing disciples. So how far these people had gone, and again, remember, he's there, he's here at this moment in time. You pull this time out, you set it down, you date it, you figure it, you account it. This is prior to his death, therefore it has to be prior to the establishment of his church, therefore it has to be prior to so many things. That leaves this sermon being preached during the times of the law of Moses, during the times of the Old Testament. So these people could not be delved as necessarily by the most specific situations. They couldn't be called Christians yet, but they're called disciples. They are those who follow. 
They are those who learn. Now, I know that these people that are among this group, surely out of this group, some of them will become what we would call Christians. Of course, that's going to have to happen after his death, burial, and resurrection and the establishment of the church. Some of these people will, in a sense, in the loose sense of it, will be apostles, not big A apostles, as in I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ like Peter and Paul and John and such, but apostles as far as we as Christians are sent to preach. That's the Great Commission which sends us to that. Not anything at all I would share on the courthouse square for fear of being misunderstood, but we are disciples. We are at least disciples and we are Christians. And so he writes specifically to his disciples. Now, knowing that, let me give you what I would consider the most concise and brief outline that you can use if you wanted to take time. I'm, again, the month of May, I do it every year. But if you want to take time for yourself and just re-examine the Sermon on the Mount, here's a brief outline you could use to do that. And it divides itself up, not exactly along chapter lines, but pretty close to it. To begin with, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the whole of the sermon there, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 48, which if you're looking at your pages there, you'll notice that is exactly the whole chapter. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 48, you could determine that that is righteousness being pictured. This is the righteousness that God wants of us, requires of us, righteousness being pictured. That's chapter 5, basically, 1 through 48. Second to that, to move on into chapter 6, chapter 6, and this is kind of smack in the middle divided, but chapter 6, starting there in verse 1 through chapter 7 and verse 12. So chapter 6 and verse 1 through chapter 7 and verse 12 is righteousness as far as it is practiced. So he first has that which is pictured. Here's what the kingdom of heaven, here's what God and righteousness look like. Here's a picture of it. And then from chapter 6 and verse 1 to chapter 7 and verse 12, so that longer span there, whole chapter 6, part of chapter 7, he's talking about righteousness as it is practiced. And you'll notice if you study this out, and I know you have, but if you continue to study it out, you'll notice that the most practical of the whole sermon, those things that are practiced intended to be done are going to be found within that section right there. And then the last part of this, which goes from chapter 7 and verse 13, so right behind where we just cut off at verse 12, <laughs> chapter 7 and verse 13 through verse 29, so through the end of the chapter, 7.13 through 7.29, you have righteousness as it is proven. So he first pictures righteousness, then he commands on us how to practice righteousness, and then he shows us how we must prove our righteousness. And that's really where you get down, especially in what I would call, I like to flip it, uh, that's where you get down to the gritty of the nitty. That's where you get down to where things get a little coarse and a little harsh and a little, a little more difficult to do. That's where he starts teaching us about things like wide and narrow gates, broad and, and wide, you know, ways and such, and how there'll be few that find it. That's where he gets down in the very latter part of chapter 7, verse 24 and forward. He starts talking about those two builders, one who builds his house upon the rock and one who builds his house upon the sand. 
and how that we have to go through those storms of life and be able to, to stand in those storms and have the foundation, which ultimately is Him, but have the foundation under us so that we can survive that, that's kind of what you get, get into this. Now, that's just the most simplest outline. I have, I've outlined things for 20 years, and every time I sat down and outlined, even the way I've done this this week, as I started, you know, again, my annual study of this in my mind, I just chose to bring some of it here, but... Um, when I sit down and do this, I try to take everything I've read before and studied before and examined. I try to push it out of my mind and push it to the side and, and start fresh. So my fresh start this time came with that basic outline of the things that he pictured, the things that he practiced, and the things that he required of us to prove, all concerning righteousness. Now, I have heard others, and I have defined it this way before. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 can be called what I've referred to even as the constitution of the kingdom because these are laws in a sense by which we can live. We can read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Again, that's not all we ought to live by, all we ought to understand, but we can read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the words that were spoken out of Jesus' mouth, and you can almost make a comparison. And I said almost make a comparison between what Jesus says in these three chapters with what you find in the Old Testament and say, for example, the Ten Commandments. Now, I've heard someone say, well, all the Ten Commandments but the one was reiterated in the New Testament. Well, uh, think about that however you wish. This is not that. We don't live by those Ten Commandments. We live by the law of God. And if God and Jesus, while on earth, if He reiterated or restated, but in this sermon we'll find out he expanded on some of those commandments, then so be it. We practice it. But we don't necessarily have a list of ten commandments. But this sermon of sorts becomes for us kind of a basis and a springboard for the way that we live. As a matter of fact, years ago after I told you I preached that 18-week series, when I finished that up, I actually backed up and continued to preach, nobody knew it really, but continued to preach Sermon on the Mount for the next three years. So I know I'd be tired of that series after three years. Well, what I did was, I didn't continue to go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What I did was, I said, okay, what was the subject? What was the topic that he spoke on first? And you say, well, if you look right here at what we'll ever get to, if we ever do, he started out talking about those who were, quote, Poor in spirit, verse 3, okay? So the first week of year whatever, I preached something about being poor in spirit, but not from this text, from everywhere else it's found. Because I think what Jesus did here, he preached what was a 10 to 18 minute sermon, and he preached that to these multitudes, and he laid the groundwork for all the application and thinking about the things that they would be told much later not just by him and his gospels and his example through his witness and his, I mean, through his word and through his wonders, that is the miracles that he did. But really, he spoke to them about the things that they would hear later on in the, uh, what we would call the epistles or the letters. And so just some, some things to discuss about that. Now, if you want to look at this, we know the next section in behind verse 1 and 2 Beginning at verse 3, you're going to notice that word that is so consistent, that word blessed. Matter of fact, oftentimes when it's read, it's not read as blessed, it's read as blessed. 
And I know when we sing it in the song, you know, blessed, do we sing blessed assurance or blessed assurance? You know, it's just the pattern. It's just the, the, the habit or whatever that we get in. The idea here of being blessed, which he's going to mention nine times in the next few verses, which he divides out into about eight principles, is one way of seeing this. These terms that he uses that all start out, King James translation has the word blessed. Other translations, some of them have changed that word to happy. And I've looked at that before and thought, well, is it the same to be blessed as to be happy? My answer, absolutely it's not. Does happy, and I'm not arguing with the translation because I don't know the translators, but does happy in our mind typically help us understand what Jesus wants us to get to here? Probably not. Because... It, yes, it has to do with the heavenly things. It has to do with a higher way of living, uh, for one thing. But when I think of happiness, and I've used this phrase before, probably even here, you see the difference is here, happiness depends on happenstance. Whatever our circumstance is for us, that's what makes us happy. You know, you can wake up one morning and, and be down and out and it just be a bad day or at least you, you perceive it's going to be a bad day and you can be down and out and you can be sad all day long. And that could ebb and flow and could change by circumstance. Now again, I was kind of joking a little bit about on the way over, I, uh, while some of you had already gotten here, that I uh, drove through what is going on right now, the Chee-Haw Challenge. And so there's a lot of bikers and I'm not knocking them, I'm just saying there was a moment in there Happiness had left the building for me because I had somewhere to be, something else I wanted to do, and it wasn't, you know, going 12 miles an hour behind a guy uphill and around a curve. I'm, I'm glad that he's enjoying that, but I wasn't enjoying that, not in a vehicle. Happiness left. But you see, happiness depends on happenstance, and this is kind of the way I usually finish that sentence. Joy depends on Jesus. That's how we can, according to James, count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. Why is that? Because joy doesn't depend on circumstance. Joy is a mindset that keeps us focused on the Lord. And so while we're focusing on the Lord, Jesus, we can have joy. Similar idea here. If all Jesus was trying to communicate was, and again, I'm just using that other translation just to, to bring this out, if all Jesus was trying to communicate was, here are eight things that will make you happy, I don't think we'd get the point. I think we would miss too much in that. Now, to understand this word blessed, the Greek word that backs up the word blessed will result in a level of happiness. Physical, emotional and spiritual but the word that backs this up is a lot closer to the word that it's translated in the king james for blessed the idea of being fortunate the idea of having sufficiency as a matter of fact this word and i don't pronounce these words properly okay i pronounce them just like anybody else from mumford would looking at a foreign language the, the word that you see here, if you took and wiped away the English and looked back at the Greek language in which this was originally penned, the word that you see is a Greek word, mercurios, a mercurios, you can say it either way. And that word means to be supplied completely. 
Now, if you're supplied completely with anything in life, generally what will that do for us? We'll be happy about that. You know, if I get shortchanged, uh, we were talking the other day, my, my dad was, uh, I was working my rear end off for him involuntarily. Um, and we were riding down the road and he was talking about eating at Cracker Barrel. He said, Our, last time I went there, I didn't like it. And they gave me little bitty, they didn't give enough food or small portions. And, you know, that's neither here nor there except for the fact that he wasn't happy. He didn't get what he wanted. Well, he texted me that night and said, we went back to Cracker Barrel and it was great. What happened, Daddy? He gave me plenty of food. Okay, see the difference? When we are sufficiently supplied, that can result in happiness. It can result in contentment. But here the word, at least the background of the word, the Greek word, that makurios, meant to be sufficiently supplied again. And it spoke in their day. As much as it was a word in Greek, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a mindset. It was almost a myth. There was an island that was just off the, coast, off the coast of this area which Jesus is in teaching at this point in time. Just off the coast there in the Mediterranean Sea though. So a little bit more on the other side. But there was a small island in the Mediterranean Sea that was often referred to as the Isle of Mercurios. And the reason they were referred to as the Isle of Mercurios, which meant completely sufficiently supplied, is because, strangely enough, they were one island out of seemingly no others that had on their island everything they needed. Spices and goods and supplies and resources. This island was seemingly above all in the area, so they claimed to be self-sufficient. They didn't have to import. They didn't necessarily export except by choice. They had what they needed, those people on that island. So they became referred to as, here's the Isle of the self-sufficient, of the fully supplied. Now, was Jesus thinking about or talking about that island? Beats me. Did Jesus use that word? Yes, he did. What did it describe to those who typically heard the word in that day? Did they think, oh, happy, let's tap down, you know? No. When they heard the word, they thought, here's a way to be sufficient. Here's a way to have supply. Here's the way to never long and never, never need. Matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to get to a point before very long where he says, blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why is that? Because on their own, they'd be hungry and thirsty. And he's pointing them in a way by which they can go to never have to deal with that anymore. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, as a matter of fact, keeps coming back to saying things like, you've heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. He starts pointing them to the fact that the way they know things and the way they live out things and the way they should know them and the way they should live. The whole sermon is a sermon about higher standards. The key verse... The key verse, it seems to me at least, in this sermon, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. So Matthew 5 and verse 20, here's what Jesus said. I think this really unlocks the sermon for you. That's what a key does, it unlocks. He says, For I say unto you, 
that accept your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. Who is Jesus speaking to? Again, he's speaking to an audience of his disciples. He's speaking to an audience of people who are just doing two things. Now, whether or not they're doing it to the nth degree with all their heart, soul, and mind, I can't judge. But they're doing two things. They're following him physically. That's how they got there. And they are learning from him. That's what they're doing now. He's teaching. They're learning. And among that group, very well either on the one hand could have been Pharisees and scribes. They could have traveled in, whether out of curiosity or, or whatever. Or at least these people, these disciples were being bombarded. We know this now. As Jesus was, were being bombarded on every side by the scribe and the Pharisaical mind. Which basically said this, and this is another division of this sermon versus everything else that they had known been aware of Jesus teaches them here to stop following after the legalistic ways of the Pharisees and learn to follow the loving ways of the Lord now what did Jesus say concerning if we loved him there's one time there's a couple of times it's recorded but there's one main time Jesus put a condition on our love what did he say if you love me do what keep my commandments so Jesus is not pushing commandments away. He's, he's not implying in this sermon that you ought to quit following the legalities of, of the commands that are laying out. Now we know the law is about to turn. It's about to go from Old Testament law to New Testament covenant. We know that. But under whichever law they're living under, he's saying keep that, keep that, but keep that for the right reason. Keep that not because the law exists, but because the lover of the lawgiver exists. I'll illustrate that. When I left the house this morning, the first road I have to get on, because it's the one I live on, I pull out on what's called McKelgey Road. There are no speed limit signs on McKelgey Road. And to most of us folks down there, that's a good, good thought, good idea. No use in putting them up there, because we'll do what we want to do, okay? I know this. In Alabama, the standard is if you see no signs, the speed limit is 45. So whether or not I can argue I saw no sign, no, it makes no difference, it's 45. But I know this, too. You won't pass, typically, unless he's headed somewhere, you won't pass a sheriff's deputy or a police officer on McElgey Road ever. So legally, there's a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit. What does Jim do? That road is easily driven at 55. And even 60 if you've been there before. 65 if you go down it every day. So I might have fudged a little bit. Is that wrong? It's wrong. All right, it's wrong. That's, it is wrong. Let me show you how this turns, though. Why would I drive 45? Because legally, the speed limit is that. And I could be motivated by that. I could say, you know what? I drive 45 because the speed limit is 45. And the law says such. But see, whatever I might do, strolling toward Borden Springs on a Sunday morning all alone with nothing else to do but think and, and to, you know, look out at the beautiful things that I saw, 
if I put any of my children in the back seat, I have no problem going 45. Why? Because the legality is made clear by the love that I have for those in the back seat. You see, under the old law, there were many a men who followed the, love, the laws of God legally, but in their mind, they had no love for it. No love for God, no appreciation for Him. They just did what they were told. The New Testament and this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to a group. These multitudes are coming and he uses the Pharisees and the scribes as an example of such, verse 20, to say, look, you can be right. And that's good. But being right, to be right, just to be following legalistic laws is not good enough. You be right to be right to follow the laws because you love the lawgiver. He said, except your righteousness should exceed that is the scribes and Pharisees. So I take everything that I read, both prior verse 20 and post verse 20, and I look at that and I say, okay, what would the scribes have done? How would the Pharisees have treated this text? And then the question continues on to say, how do I treat it? You've got to give the least to accomplish the best. We've got to start at some point, and we've got to move on. So, Let's look at these now. All of that was introduction somewhat to the Sermon on the Mount. Scratch the surface of it at least. Then we start here in verse 3. Here's the first idea. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now I think in some sense, again, this is just me outlining. It's nothing, nothing divine, biblical inspired to do so, but just in me outlining the text, trying to give it a fresh look, what he does, and we call these the Beatitudes because they're the attitudes that ought to be. But when he starts with these Beatitudes and he uses the first one here in verse 3, at least 3a part of it at least, is how I'm looking at it specifically, he's talking about our attitude of self. It's our attitude of self. Now, when you move on, I'm just giving you some of the outline for this to guide you as you study it on your own. When you move on into verse, the next set, set of verses there, verses 4 and 5, that's verse 3. When you move on to verses 4 and 5, he's talking about our attitude toward sin. So our attitudes toward self, verse 3, verse 4 and 5 are attitude toward sin. And then you move on a little bit farther than that, and you find out there's yet another attitude to have, and that is our attitude toward the Savior. And that's verse 7 and 8. Our attitude toward the Savior, because he's going to start telling us about how we ought to be as he was peaceful, how we ought to be as he was merciful, how we ought to be as he was meek, and such as that. That's what he's going to tell us. And then finally, and this is the scary one that I was hoping to get to in the next hour, to break down a little farther. But he talks about our attitude toward our situation. So we got our self, we've got our sins, we've got our Savior, and we've got our situation. That breaks out basically two verses apiece, not exactly. The first one's one verse, and then two verses apiece, kind of, sort of, after that. So that gives us an, a guide to go by. But looking at this first one here, our attitude toward 
self. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing I think about when I read this, I think about that principle, because every one of these comes with, to an extent, a principle, but then as a result of seeing the principle and using it in our lives, you get a promise. So you can look at any of these and you say, well, blessed is, and they will. Blessed is, they will. There's a principle, there's a promise. But Jesus, again, wants these principles to be practiced, not in just principle, but he wants them to be used as a pattern to stay on a path toward him, to get toward him. So it's not just a principle. It's not just a law. It's more than that. It's motivated by love. And so the first one here, he's talking about that, those things, he says, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is talking about the spiritual things, not the material. When we think about poor, always the first conclusion is what? Somebody who's hungry or without clothes or without shelter or just doesn't have anything in the bank. And you know as Bible students, very quickly, that's not what he means here. If one were blessed or made sufficient, remember, resulting in happiness though, if one were blessed by simply being poor, what would that do for most folks that I've met in Munford and Borden Springs and Piedmont and Spring Garden? We'd all be living high in heaven. <laughs> Don't have a lot here. You know, what we do have, we have to use to, to operate with. Other than that, just don't, you know, don't have an extreme amount of wealth or something. We're not talking about that, obviously. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, in his mind, his spirit, he sees himself in comparison to God to be poor. Is God rich? Some people have in mind, though, that just what you would say, as long as they're poor, they, they're God. They're doing right. Yes, and there's to an extent, you know, Jesus had to teach on it because it came up. It had to teach the, how hard it was for a rich man that was speaking physically for a rich man to get in the kingdom of heaven. Easier, he described it as a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And that has some bearing. But of course, he's talking, obviously, as you're stating there too, he's talking more about the spiritually poor. That is the folks, and this is one thing that I kind of jotted over here in my margin as I was looking at it again at uh, 2 o'clock this morning because I always have to, I can't sleep, so I have to get up and do some more. Uh, Yes, and humility is going to be a huge part of all of this, particularly when you get down into verse 4 and 5. Humility is definitely going to play a huge role in this, for sure. But uh, the idea here is those who start out empty, and this is going to be the case between the next four, those who start out empty will become full. When someone is poor in spirit, what God gives them, and it's, it's the promise here of the principle, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's the reward for that? What's the promise? One who's poor in spirit gets the kingdom of heaven. How great is that? There's no other option. I mean, there's no other ideal that's even made remotely 
comparable to such. Now, I had someone ask me one day, and I really had to put my thinking cap on, and really more than that, I just thumbed through some pages. Someone asked me one day, said, well, is there any difference? Because sometimes he speaks of the kingdom of heaven, sometimes he speaks of the kingdom of God. What, if any, are there any differences of such? Well, biblically, it seems like, my disclaimer, seems like, doesn't mean is like, just seems like. It seems like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God refers to His rule. God rules in the kingdom of God. That's what kings do. They sit on thrones and they rule. God rules in the kingdom of God. And of course that is inclusive of what we have here. For reference, just for something you look at later, if you put down Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, that comes around to saying that. The rule of God is the kingdom of God. But the reward of God is what is stated here, the kingdom of heaven. That's the reward. When we obey the rule, we can receive and exchange the reward. So there's a principle here and there's a promise and how great it is to be able to obtain in exchange for our basically spiritual poorness or emptiness the kingdom of heaven itself. So that's one way of looking at that one. Now the next one here, verses 4 and 6. Did you give me like a five-minute flash or you just happened to throw up five fingers? And you don't even know what I'm talking about because you didn't do it. Somebody did something. Well, he did this like, Maybe it was going. <laughs> I don't think we got long. Is class about over or should be over already? Oh, so go on for another minute or two. All right, well, here we go. We're at the 15 till. We'll go to the 10 till. Um, but anyway, next, next section right here, next set of verses. Again, that's the attitude about self. So what should our attitude about self be? And all these build on each other, and there's no reason to go to the last of these until the first one is accomplished. And as I've heard it stated before, I think this is very appropriate. This is not an a la carte menu. You know what a la carte is? Get any item you want, mix and match. Not that. It's an all-inclusive menu. This is not going to Walmart. This is going to Sam's. You see, you can go in Walmart, buy a can of tuna fish because you want it. I don't want it, but you might buy that. But you go to Sam's, you get a whole case. This is what this is. These people come and sit at the feet of Jesus. I don't know what they wanted that day or what they expected to get, but they left with everything. Information-wise, he gave them a sufficient, a blessed amount of information. Now, Verse 4 and 5, I've put them together. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now again, this is our attitude towards sin. So we mourn many things. We mourn the deaths of loved ones, obviously. We mourn situations. Sometimes we mourn just whatever's going on around us. There are things that make us sad that bring us to a point of wanting to weep, that bring us to a point of, of mourning, of struggling. Matter of fact, in Jesus' day, you could actually get a job as a paid professional mourner. Just like, you know, just like uh, in his day, you could pay someone to come to your wedding. They paid people to come to funerals. 
And they wore all the, all the, just like we would sometimes see at a funeral situation, they wore all the darker colors, the black, and, and they would mourn and mourn. They were typically hired to mourn for at least a week. And I mean public, you know, in front of the house, in front of the, uh, the, the, the city streets or whatever. And they would mourn and they would cry out and they would scream, mourning the death of some person. Now, obviously, that could occur naturally because it was a loved one, but these people, some were paid to do such. And so, you know, the Pharisees, verse 5 and verse 20, if you look at where they would have been on this, he says, blessed are the poor. They were rich physically, and they thought they were rich spiritually. If you look at this and say, well, compare this to the Pharisees, he said, blessed are they that mourn. Well, they would often mourn because they would mourn as an outward showing of something. It was, it was often the Pharisee types who were rending their clothes. That was a sign of mourning. And they would stand in the streets. Chapter 6 gets around to this concerning their prayers and concerning some other things. And they would stand in the streets to be seen of men. And they would mourn and they would weep. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what is this? The principle is when we mourn, we receive comfort. And that's partly uh, part of what he is allowing us or, or teaching us that we can obtain. Now, there are several passages I would go to, but we are going to stop right there. We'll, we'll continue on at some point in this whether we just pick up in the next hour move forward and come back at some point but anything anyone will comment otherwise so far well you 